0: All right. Well, good morning, and uh, great to see your face. And if you have your Bible with you, we'd love for you to open it to Acts chapter 5, verse 17. That's on page 913 in the Pew Bibles. We, uh, we've been slow walking through the book of Acts over the last several weeks now, looking at these foundational stories as an aid, as a guide in reevaluating everything we think we know about the church. Now feels like a very good time to have that kind of conversation. You've heard me say many times, it's hard to do maintenance on an airplane in flight. There's a sense in which it almost requires a great disruption to have substantial conversations. And so COVID, of course, was a great disruption for the church. And so it presents us with that opportunity to have foundational conversations. Why do we do this? Why have we been doing this for, for centuries? Who, who, whose idea was that? Uh, is this in the Bible? Is this something that we can hold with an open hand and say, well, we'll keep doing that as long as it makes sense? Or is this something we need to hold on to with both hands, meaning, no, 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 we need to do this no matter the cost, no matter what? It's a great time to have those, those sorts of conversations. We want to use the scriptures, and particularly these stories in Acts, as a sort of plumb line against which to measure ourselves to see where we might be out of line, and to make corrections in advance of whatever may lie ahead. One of the things I said uh, very often in conversations with fellow pastors over COVID is I'm convinced that COVID was a giant dress rehearsal. It it was like a stress test in a sense, right? A stress test is like a dress rehearsal for an actual heart attack. Uh, it, it, it gives you an idea of what changes you might want to make in advance of facing that actual challenge. And I would say, similarly, uh, COVID functioned as a bit of a stress test, as a bit of a dress rehearsal for the church, gave us an opportunity to notice where perhaps we had some ideas we hadn't entirely thought through, where there were things that we needed to think through. There's lots of things we hadn't really thought through because we never needed to before. And so I think that uh, there's a great opportunity facing the church right now as our eyes are open to some of these things. This morning, in our journey through Acts, uh, we have made our way to a pivotal confrontation between the church and the state. Now, that's an interesting dynamic. At at several points in the Old Testament, I'm sure you've noticed this as you go through your readings, at several points in the Old Testament, the church and the state are one and the same. So we think, for example, of the time of David and Solomon. During the the reign of David and Solomon, the, the church and the state were entirely overlapping Realities. But then, of course, there were other periods where the church existed inside of another hostile state. We think, for example, of the time when Israel existed inside Babylon in the Babylonian exile. Theologically speaking, when we're talking about the church, we're talking about the assembly of the redeemed. And as I said, sometimes in the Old Testament, the assembly of the redeemed existed inside of other states, but for most of the Old Testament. The church and the state were largely overlapping realities. Israel was the church. Israel was the assembly of the redeemed. They had been since Exodus 19. But again, for much, not all, but for much of the Old Testament, Israel was also a state. They had a king. They had an army. They had a court system. But in the New Testament, we see that situation undergoing a fundamental shift. We've talked many times about how God was grinding the covenant community down to a single stone so as to build again, so as to completely renovate and refurbish. And of course, that stone was Jesus Christ. Jesus said, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So God was doing something big. He was radically reconstituting the covenant community. He was dramatically pruning and repositioning the tree, to switch metaphors, for maximum fruitfulness. From now on, the church is going to exist inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. That's the plan, and it's a glorious plan. It's, it's a transformative plan, but it's also a complicated plan as we see in the passage that hopefully lies open before you now. Now, what I want you to do, actually, is I want you to stick a little tassel or tab, if you need to yank off some hair from the person next to you, to keep that passage open. Probably don't do that, but do what you need to do uh, to, to keep that passage open. And then I actually want you to flip over to another passage. We're going to look at two passages simultaneously this morning. I want you to look at Matthew 22, 17 to 21. And you might say, Pastor, what are you doing here? It was hard enough to find Acts chapter 5, now you got me going to another passage. By the way, that's on page 827 if you need help there. And the reason is simply this, sometimes you have to look at two passages together. You can't look at at certain passages in the Bible in isolation. Uh, Let me give you a quick for example while you find that. It, It probably would feel weird to you, I hope it would feel weird to you, if we preached a sermon just on the exception clauses of divorce in the New Testament without also mentioning the general pattern in the Scripture, which is for one man and one woman to come together in holy matrimony and covenant marriage and to stay together for their whole lives. Wouldn't it feel weird if I just said, hey, here are the couple of reasons you can get divorced, amen, let's go home. No, Pastor, you haven't done justice to that passage. The, the truth is, in the Bible, there is a general pattern, and then there are, there are a couple of recognized exceptions. Divorce is treated in the Bible as a painful occasionally necessary exception to the general pattern. And we wouldn't be we wouldn't be fair to the Scriptures if we didn't deal with it in that fashion. And likewise, I would say here, when we talk about the church and the state, it's important for us to first look at the general pattern. This is what the Bible says is generally true. At the same time, looking at the few passages where we see the church having to apply that in really complicated situations. So we need to do both, general pattern and reasonable exception. If we're going to treat these matters, I think, in a balanced way. All right, so hopefully you've got Matthew twenty-two seventy to 21 open. Let me read that to you. Someone came with a question to Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. All right, so here in this passage, we have a general rule. Jesus tells us to render unto Caesar what Caesar is due. Now, we sometimes think of the word Caesar as a name, but it was also and actually a title. It means emperor. There were many Caesars, and Caesar just became a word, it means emperor. So Jesus is saying that the emperor, the the king, the head of state, or in a more general sense just the state itself, has legitimate authority. And therefore, the emperor is due appropriate respect, appropriate honor, and specifically appropriate tax revenue from his subject people. Now, Jesus rebukes the Roman conception of imperial authority, when he asks whose image is on the coin, by using that word, image, he reminds everybody that Caesar himself is a human being. He's an image bearer. Caesar is not ultimate. He is the, the representative. He resembles and represents God, but he is not God himself. In, in essence, Jesus right-sizes our conception of government authority in this passage. The Romans treated the emperor like God. The Jews, on the other hand, were constantly in rebellion. Neither of those is the right approach according to Jesus. Rather, we should render unto Caesar what Caesar is due and render unto God what God is due. Brilliant. In essence, Jesus says that Caesar, the state, has been delegated certain authority in the same way, by the way, that our parents have been delegated certain authority. Our our parents also are flawed and fallen human beings, aren't they? And yet, God commands us to obey them. Have you ever thought of that? In the fifth commandment, it says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. So over the course of our lives, we will obey God by obeying our parents and by obeying our government authorities. Both of them have been given responsibility, and both of them have been given authority. Now, of course, this became standard doctrine in the church. The Apostle Paul acknowledged the legitimate authority of the emperor in Romans 13, saying, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So in this new situation where the church is going to exist inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth, we have been given a general rule to guide us along the way, and the general rule is this. Render unto Caesar what Caesar is due. Pay your taxes. Show respect. Obey the law. All right? Fair enough. But, but what do you do in a situation where the state forbids you to do what God commands. That's the tricky issue being navigated in Acts chapter 5. So hopefully you've still got your hair or your tab or your whatever, and you can flip over now to Acts chapter 5. Let's have a look at that. Acts 5, 17 to 42. Here again the word of the Lord. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come or, sorry, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, "Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what do we do? What, What do we do? when the state forbids us to do what God commands or commands us to do what God forbids? What do we do when the commandments of the state and the commandments of God are in conflict? That's what the apostles are wrestling with in this story. Jesus had said, render unto Caesar. But Jesus had also said, go and make disciples of all nations. So what do you do when the state forbids you to do what Jesus has commanded you to do. Every person under the Lordship of Jesus needs to wrestle with that question. What do we do when a lawful but lesser authority tells us to do something that clearly contradicts the Word of God? Young ladies, what if your parents tell you to get an abortion? What if they say, you're too young to have this? Baby, what if they say, this will ruin your life? What if they say, you need to finish university? There is no way you can have this child at this time. You must abort. What are you going to do? Are you going to obey your parents? Or are you going to obey God? This passage is giving us guidance. In Acts 5, 29, Peter states the matter plainly. He says, we must obey God rather than men. God is our ultimate authority, and God has spoken to us authoritatively through the person and work of Christ. Look again at what Peter says in his brief address before the Senate. He says, "...the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him." So, Peter says, we understand now, God has made manifest the order of the universe. We've got God the creator at the top. We've got Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, ruling over all things on earth down here. So His authority must be our ultimate authority. We must obey Him first of all. And so we're in a bit of a pickle here, fellas, because you are telling us not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, but your boss and our boss has told us to do the very opposite. And so we must obey God rather than men. Peter is just acting consistently with his new understanding of the universe. God has exalted Jesus as leader and Savior. That's why we say that Jesus is Lord. That's what that means, Jesus is leader and savior. He is the ruler of all humanity, and as such, he's the ultimate authority. His word trumps all. Now, there are still lesser authorities in the universe. But there are no rival authorities in the universe. So if your parents, if your premier, or if you're prime minister commands you to do what God has forbidden, or forbids you to do what God commands, then you must obey God rather than men. That's what the Bible is saying. It's pretty straightforward. But how does this work out at street level? Let me walk you through a few guiding principles in terms of practical application. Number one, obviously, you need a clear command. You can't just pull out, well, you know, we must obey God rather than men every time your mom tells you to clean your room. Right, That would be a wrong application of this message because there is no clear command in the Bible authorizing you, commanding you to wallow in your own filth as a teenager. I know because I have looked for it. <laughs> and likewise, likewise, there is no clear command in the Bible as to what day, what time, how often, and in what form we gather together as a church for worship. You know, it is interesting. I think you've probably heard me paraphrase that quote from John Piper. John Piper, in his book, Expository Exaltation, says that there is a stunning lack of specificity in the New Testament with respect to form for corporate worship. And it is stunning. I mean, if you are a regular Bible reader and you read through the Old Testament, and you, you know, if you're doing the RMM Bible reading plan, it always kind of bogs down a little bit in April because you get into the stunning specificity of the Old Testament with respect to worship. They'll tell you how big the doves should be, how many doves, you know, where the blood from the doves should fall, what to do if you get some on your boot, and, and it's just like it's a lot of detail for us as contemporary believers because we're actually kind of used to the stunning non-specificity of the New Testament. And we're reminded of that every time we do communion, aren't we? In the communion liturgy, in the words that we say in communion, you're reminded all, every month here, you're reminded of the stunning lack of specificity in the New Testament with respect to worship form. Because what do we always say? We quote Jesus saying, do this as often as you eat of it in remembrance of me. And the legalist inside is going, Time out! How often? And because we've been arguing about this for 500 years. Should communion be every Sunday? Should it be once a month? Should it be four times a year? You can find good Christian people who love Jesus and take their Bible seriously, who practice all of those options. So what should it be? And it's kind of like, you get this impression in the New Testament that now that we we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, now that our hearts have been changed by Jesus, and now that we have all of these principles it's almost like God trusts us. It's almost like he gives us enough flexibility that we could handle certain complicated situations should they arise. One does get that impression. So there is this this kind of lack of specificity. And and so when we go for looking for specific instructions and laws about what time and in what form and, and, and how often we don't find it. And that's why, to be perfectly honest with you, the whole conversation in COVID was so complicated and controversial. It forced us to think carefully about what God commands in terms of the form of worship gathering. During the worst parts of the pandemic, of course, you remember uh, at first I was just writing a COVID summary for the board, and so I've been forced to remember all the bad old days of COVID. It is amazing how much we have forgotten Every once in a while, something will pop up on Facebook where you're waving a ribbon and doing something ridiculous, and you'll be like, oh, my goodness, I completely forgot about that. It, it, it's amazing. So in the bad old days of COVID, we were only allowed eight people in the building at first um, and, and th- for the purposes of delivering an online service. I don't know if you remember that. And then that changed to 10 people in the building for any reason. So, for long stretches of the pandemic, what we were doing is we were having eight people in here on a Sunday morning or eight or ten uh, to deliver a service, and then we were having small gatherings throughout the week. That's, that's how we did it in the worst of the lockdown during COVID. I was thinking through B3. We, B3 got chopped up into a bunch of pieces B3 was our leadership development program. Got chopped up into a bunch of pieces because of COVID because we went through like all the protocol iterations, as you recall. So I think we started as one big group in here, then COVID hit, and then so we were, I don't even know if we ever did one online. I don't think we did. I think we paused. But then we met like in, we split our group up so we could meet in little groups, and then when we could meet outside, we met outside. We did everything. We, we did everything we could to get it done. But some people said that Caesar doesn't have the right, doesn't have the authority to make these sorts of demands of us. And so they said to Caesar, we must obey God rather than men. Now, listen, first of all, I want to say how much respect I have for anyone who is willing to go to jail for their religious convictions. I don't have any malice toward the men who made the decisions they did to disobey the government during COVID so long as they made those decisions based on their conviction of what Scripture says. I've been in personal contact with some of those men. I respect why they did what they did, but I am on the record as disagreeing with those men for the simple reason that I could not locate a clear command. Now, you might say, hold it, Pastor. What about, what about Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, which talks about not neglecting to meet together? What about that? Well, we wrestled with that, let me tell you. But that text doesn't say anything about when we meet or how we meet or whether we have to gather the whole congregation together into one room. It just says we mustn't neglect our meetings. Well, let me ask you, did we neglect our meetings when we obeyed the pandemic restrictions? I have a pastor friend in Toronto who had a smaller congregation, about 170 people. So in the worst days of COVID, he conducted... 17 small services per week so that he could get all his people in. Let me ask you, was he neglecting to bring his people together because he didn't gather all 170 of his mostly older folks into a single room during the worst days of the pandemic? Or is there some flexibility around the hows and where's of Christian gathering? I think there is. I think you see it in this passage, Acts 5, 42. says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So it sounds like they had large group gatherings and small group gatherings, and it was all church because they were together preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. That was my understanding. And it was the unanimous understanding of our board. I can't remember if there were 12 of us or 13 of us on the board, of the, on the leadership team at the time, but I remember we were unanimous on this. We wrestled, but we were unanimous. This is where we landed. But listen, I happily acknowledge that this was a complicated situation. And my point is just to say if you are going to disobey the state, then you need to have a clear command. From God. The apostles in this text had a clear command from God. It was clear and it was confirmed. Look again at verses 19 to 21. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the apostles had a clear command from Jesus, go and make disciples. And they had that command confirmed by an angel of the Lord. And on that basis, they entered the temple and began to preach. What I'm arguing for here is simply clarity and caution. In the heat of the battle, when tempers flare, it is easy to see whatever you want to see in the text. Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans 13, where Paul elaborates on the command of Jesus to render under Caesar, says, Few passages of Scripture have been studied and analyzed over the years more than Romans 13, 1 to 7. This history of interpretation has largely been the history of attempts to avoid what the passage at first sight plainly seems to be saying. So if you find yourself doing that, all I'm saying is this, slow down, seek confirmation because you need a clear command before you apply Acts five twenty nine to whatever grievance you have with the government. And then secondly, you need to maintain a respectful attitude throughout. At no point in this story do we find the apostles insulting or reviling the members of the Jewish Senate. They are respectful. They're telling the truth. They're pulling no punches. But at no point do we find them showing malice? At no point do we read about their vitriol? At no point do we observe any dishonor. We see the same thing in the trial of the Apostle Paul. Church history tells us that the Apostle Paul uh, had very bad eyesight, and that's why you sometimes get that uh, little line at the end of some of his epistles, see with what wonky letters I write my own name or whatever. Uh, it's, it's, it's clear that he used a secretary, and, and from a variety of the comments he made and some of the things we see in church history, the, the assumption is he had very bad eyesight. And at one point in the story, he seems to have been talking to somebody, and he didn't know who he was talking to. We read about that last week in the RMM. In Acts 23, Paul is talking, and someone slaps him in the mouth. And Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul apologized for inadvertently addressing a ruler of his people with disrespect. Think about that. How many times have we 100% advertently addressed a ruler of our people with disrespect? How many Christians need to repent of their entire bumper sticker game over the last three years? Listen, brothers and sisters, you can have opinions. You can make your opinions known. You can vote your conscience. But one thing you cannot do as a follower of Jesus Christ is address the leaders of your people with disrespect. That's not an option. Peter understood that. He told his people, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So listen, every once in a while, every once in a while, you are going to have to defy the state if you have a clear command, but you never, ever, ever get to be disrespectful because to do that, you'd have to disobey a direct command from God. Thirdly, if you go down this road, and every once in a while, you're going to have to, but if you do, when you do, you need to be prepared to pay the price Remember, the whole point of this series is to reevaluate everything we think we know about the church by looking at these foundational stories. And there are people who have thought at various points in our history that if the government is in the wrong, then the church has the right to use violence in her own defense. But that isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says that if the government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, then you have the right to disobey the government and you have the associated privilege of suffering persecution on behalf of the name. That's what happens in this story. Look at verses 40 to 41. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The Tyndale New Testament commentary points out the obvious here, saying, it may be observed that neither here nor anywhere else do the Christians respond with violence to being arrested. I wish that went without saying, but as history reminds us, it does not. We don't get to use the sword to protect or extend our permission and privilege in the culture. We stand our ground. We speak the truth and we suffer the consequences, even rejoicing to be considered worthy to suffer on behalf of the name. And then, lastly, when you find yourself in a situation like this, when you have to say no to a lawful but lesser authority, you must be careful to maintain your focus on the mission that was given to you by Christ. When we feel justified in conflict, we often fight too hard. And too long. The apostles could have said, you know, they started it, right? As any mature individual will do. They started it. They're in the wrong. They drew first blood. Therefore, we need to commit ourselves to bringing down this unjust and ungodly government. Instead, as we read in verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And that's my hope for the evangelical church on the other side of COVID. We need to get back to work. We need to focus on the mission. We were not told to start a political action committee. We were not told to wage constant war on the government. We were told to teach and preach that the Christ is Jesus. So let's do that. Let's go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that He has commanded. And lo, He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we sense it doesn't take too much wisdom or discernment to sense that we are heading into troubled times, heading into seasons where the relationship between church and state will be more complicated than it has been in generations past. Lord, we don't want to simply react uh, in a knee-jerk kind of way. We want to react thoughtfully in the interaction with the Scriptures. So, Lord, I pray that we would take these passages that we've looked at today, that we would meditate upon them, and that we would resolve in our hearts and in our minds how we will respond in similar situations. Lord, we need to remember that we represent Jesus. We represent the one who, as he was being nailed to a cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We represent the one who could have summoned legions of angels to fight on his behalf, and yet who willingly went to the cross. And so, Lord, obviously that's an impossibly high bar Obviously, we can't do that in our own strength. Obviously, we are selfish and petty and angry at times. And so, Lord, we will need supernatural help from the Holy Spirit. Lord, without the Holy Spirit, we can't even begin to walk this way. So fill us afresh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.